Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. With school starting in a little over two weeks' time comes news of potential teacher strikes. We have a better sense of Hamilton's encampment protocol, and we also chat about inflation, conspiracy theories, and fighting in hockey. The GMH podcast begins now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. As you know, back-to-school shopping's underway. Kids will be back in class in the couple of weeks' time, but for how long is now the question we are asking because, well, labor strife is back into the picture because the Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario, the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation, threatening to hold a strike vote as negotiations with the province have come to a standstill. Now, the government says it's been bargaining in good faith. You know, we're disappointed to hear this particular education union decide to proceed with the strike vote. I think we realize it's been so difficult on children in this province, and stability has been our strength. I mean, keeping these kids in school, building fundamental skills on reading, writing, and math has been a critical uh, objective of the government. And these kids had a good last year. Uh, my objective is to keep them in school this coming school year. And while that might be true, Education Minister Stephen Lecce, teachers' unions are saying that's not the whole story. Karen Brown is the president of the Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Karen, good morning. How are you? Hi, Rick. I'm fine. Thank you. Bring us to the bargaining table. What are the sticking points right now? Uh, right now, uh, basically, special education funding. We've been asking this government to increase uh, funding with the amount of teachers and resources for students. Uh, violence in schools, as you know, this is becoming normalized. Uh, we want a plan from this government. We want some tools that are going to be implemented that are province-wide and standard. We're looking at class size. Uh, kids are being cr- in, in crowded classrooms. Uh, and that, you know, it's, that's not good. And, of course, there's, there's compensation. Uh, inflation has gone up. Ontario is a very expensive province to live in. And we're looking at... Um, um, you know, compensation that's um, in re- in re- in that re- reflects that. When it comes to wages, because it's always the the thing that people look at first to say, okay, how much money do they want? What are you asking for? What do you think teachers deserve? Well, what we're asking for is it's what's reasonable. Let's just put it let's put it this way: we're looking at in- inflation. What what's the cost of living for housing, for example, has gone up. Uh, the, the daily things that our members need, that everyone in, in the province needs, has gone up. Uh, so we're, we're asking for things that are in keeping with inflation. Other provinces we've seen are, are uh, doing that, are, are extending that goodwill at the table in B.C. Uh, they have been able to reach a fair agreement with their teachers in regards to compensation and, and uh, working conditions. New Brunswick, the same. Uh, this government is sitting on a $22 billion surplus that is more than enough to address issues of compensation and resources that our, our, our students need to succeed. What we need to see from them is a willingness at the bargaining table. I think the offer that I saw was 1.25% over four years, which amounts to 5%. How, how far off is that from what you want to see? 1.25%. If you're looking at inflation, is that that's, that's not really keeping up with the cost of living. Looking at comparison with other provinces, our, our, our members and our colleagues uh, will be out of step with that. I think we we're seeing um, what's, what's happening in Ontario and across Canada, and I think that's not even a starting point for our members. It's actually uh, insulting uh, for, for the education sector um, looking at what's happening uh, across this country. Our members also need to be able to uh, keep up with inflation to provide for, for their families. Inflation hovering around 3% now, is that the number you're looking at? 
uh, that's a start. <laughs> and then, then I think we need to look at it's a whole compensation package. So there's 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 salary. There's other issues that we're looking at. As I talked about uh, special education, which benefits parents and students, the violence in the classroom. So we're looking at an overall package. And so there are things that at the negotiation table you could talk about. But as, as a bare minimum, we have to be looking at um, where inflation is for if you're looking at specifically compensation. And that's why it's negotiations. You're talking about different things. So there are key things in regards to being compensated, but it's also the working conditions for our members, which is key. And that's one of the reasons why we're having such a difficult time attracting and maintaining teachers in Ontario. There are many with teaching qualifications, but the working conditions, people are saying, hey, I'm highly skilled, I'm highly qualified. I'm out of here. Karen, in our final minute together, what is the target date for a possible strike vote? Uh, we will be connecting strike votes starting in, in um, mid-September. And so we will be doing a whole month of that. And when we got the calendar finalized, that information will be on our, on our website. We'll be, we'll be taking uh, strike votes and we'll be informing our members of the dates. And, and that information will be coming up very soon in regards to the first uh, strike vote meeting that we'll be having. We don't want to have a strike. We want to stability. Our members want to be in the classroom. We have two negotiation dates left at the end of August. We're going to be there, and we're hoping that this government is going to come in good faith. We also filed an unfair labor practice because this government doesn't want to work and respect the bargaining process. They just want to go in and violate and introduce things that need to be discussed at the table, and that's another key element. They cannot continue to disrespect our members and the process. Just because you don't get your way, you don't. You just don't impose. There's a process that's been outlined by the Labor Relations Boards. We all have a, a responsibility to engage in fair collective bargaining. We're ready, and we need them to be committed to that process. Karen, appreciate the time today. Let's hope we can find a solution that works for everyone. Thanks for joining us, and uh, we'll talk to you down the road. Okay, thank you, Rick. Take Karen care. Brown is the president of the Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Let's dive into the homelessness and encampments debate here in the city. And it's also the focus of our poll question of the day on Twitter. You can find it at AM900CHML. City of Hamilton's new encampment protocol is going to allow up to five tents on public property as long as they are not within 100 meters of playgrounds and schools. So we're asking you, are you for or against allowing encampment sites in the city? This is the, the direction we are moving in. 88% right now in our poll questions say, no, they're against this. Don't want to see this happen. 12% are for it. They're, they're, I'm assuming, trying to find a solution to this issue. And there's not a perfect, there's not a perfect scenario in this equation. Well, there is a perfect scenario. That's just building more housing. So everyone can have a house. That is the perfect scenario. There's, there's a lot to do in that regard. So on this encampment protocol, and, and part of this as well is increased washrooms and, and shower access for those in encampments. Um, increased garbage collection, uh, some tiny shelters along Strawn Street in Hamilton's North End as a pilot project. There's, there's a lot going into this. Uh, to give us some insight into how this was developed and some of the reaction uh, from councillors is Ward 8 Councillor John Paul Danko, who joins us here on Good Morning Hamilton. JP, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. I'm doing well. Um, I know this ha has not been officially rubber stamped by City Council, but uh, there there seems to be some consensus around the table to to move forward with this. What was your sense? 
I think there is consensus to move forward, and, and that was definitely the message that we heard from the mayor, that we need a protocol in place because we need a mechanism that we can manage the crisis that we're in. And listening to your poll question of the day results, I'm not surprised. Um, as the you know ward councilors and elected representatives, I don't want encampments in uh, city property in my ward or anywhere in the city. I especially don't want encampments in parks. But the reality that we're facing as a municipality, as municipalities across Canada are facing, is that we are in a homelessness crisis right now. Um, Since 2020, we've seen a 70% increase in the number of homeless people in the city of Hamilton. And that is a level that we just cannot accommodate within the existing structures, the existing systems. They are on the verge of collapse. And what that has led to is a large number of people that genuinely have nowhere else to go. And at the same time, you have courts across Canada that have legislated against municipalities, against uh, uh, bylaws that allow uh, or that ban par- uh, camping in public parks. Um, those bylaws have been struck down. So, you know, in the face of all of that, uh, we really have no choice that there are going to be people that are setting up tents in parks in city, city, on city land because they genuinely have nowhere else to go. And as the mayor articulated very strongly, we need uh, a way that we can address this situation, that we can manage it as best we can. And the protocol that was passed, I think, is a great first step, you know, really the only first step that we could take to manage that situation. The way I look at it, and and this is to no offense to anyone voting uh, in our poll question against because they're entitled to their opinion, but listen, uh, whether or not the city has a protocol or not, we have encampments in our public parks right now. This protocol will set at least some parameters on how they should be set up. But in saying that, we know that no plan is perfect. And, and this is far from, again, as I said, being rubber stamped or officially approved by council. But obviously, we're, we're leaning towards that direction. What do you really like about this plan? And what do you look at and say, I don't know if that's going to work? Well, I think the, the whole point of the protocol is it, is it sets some common rules and some, some enforcement parameters so that we can have some expectations for when residents call the councilor's office or they call the city and have a concern with something that's going on in their neighborhood as it relates to uh, encampments and homelessness. And I think it also addresses some of the bigger concerns that residents have around uh, things like uh, human waste in parks, that people are going to the washroom in bushes because they have nowhere else to go. So we have some um, ability to, to provide facilities for people. We're going to be doing some waste management, so you know, trying to keep it as clean as we can. I also have some pretty big concerns. I mean, uh, what I hear from residents is the biggest concern is a lot of the behavior that we see that's associated with encampments. And there are some very strong opinions on this, but the reality is is that um, the people that are living in encampments are dealing with some very severe mental health and addictions issues. And that leads to, uh, or can lead to, you know, aggressive and unpredictable behavior, can lead to threatening behavior, can lead to uh, open drug use, needles that get left lying around. And those are some of the things that I'm really concerned about that we're actually going to be, you know, addressing with our staff. We've, we've allocated additional funds to additional bylaw support 
to parks staff in order to clean up as well. Um, but I really hope that we are don't just fall through with the status quo as it is right now because it's it, in my opinion anyway it's kind of a free for all in some of the parks. JP, before before I let you go because that. we're running out of time, I want to ask you real quick: do we have a do we have a cost of this plan? Um, well, overall, the city of Hamilton is spending $70 million in 2023 on housing and homelessness, uh, additional $8 million this year in emergency funding. Um, so in total, we're spending about $100 million a year on housing and homelessness, wow. uh, this plan being part of that. John Paul, thank you for your time today, as always. Thanks for having me on, Rick. That is Ward 8 Councillor John Paul Danko, City of Hamilton, reflecting on the encampment protocol. We'll have more on the other side of the break about whether or not this protocol is going to work. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Still on the encampment issue and homelessness in this community and building more affordable housing units because the city in yesterday's General Issues Committee meeting at Hamilton City Hall identified about 1,700 individuals in this community, 1,700 who are homeless. 165 of those people are in encampments or living outside. And if you're wondering, well, where are the other homeless people? Well, they're couch surfing, they're in shelters, they're trying to, trying to find a place to stay. They're not physically outside or in a tent outside. Councillors, as you heard, have given initial approval to this plan to allow up to five tents on public property as long as, there's a number of parameters here, as long as they're within 100 meters of playgrounds, uh, schools, other sensitive uses, so to speak. And there's also a plan to increase washroom and shower access for these people in encampments, set up increased garbage collection, and there's also a proposal for a pilot project, a two-year pilot project, to construct 25 tiny shelters along Strawn Street in the north end of the city. Now, the new protocol, as you remember, follows widespread public consultation processes. There were, there were well-attended public meetings. And at these public meetings, most people who were there were opposed to allowing tents to be set up in neighborhood parks. Mayor Andrea Horvath in the meeting said that this, this strikes a necessary balance. The protocols provide us with a framework within which to prioritize our efforts and deploy our resources. They demonstrate care for encampment residents and also those who live and work near their locations. Is this the best plan possible? Will this protocol work? Tom Cooper is the director of the Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Tom, welcome back to the show. Hey, good to talk to you, Rick. You know, we need, and I mentioned this earlier with Councillor John Paul Denko, we need some sort of parameters because right now we have encampments in parks and other public spaces. Uh, is this the right way to go? What, what do you like about this protocol? Well, I think the new protocol does try to strike a balance between recognizing that homelessness is an absolute crisis right now, Rick, and people simply don't have any place to go. So the opportunity with this new protocol is to really identify some spots in the city where people can set up tents in in very small numbers, up to five. And, you know, it's obviously not a perfect solution. We need more housing. We need supportive housing. Uh, We need the federal and provincial government to invest 
tens of millions, hundreds of millions of more dollars uh, to, to get people housed. But while we're waiting for that, we have to recognize we're in a crisis. We need to keep people relatively safe if we can. And, and I, I do think uh, staff really tried to find that balance between uh, public concerns about uh, encampments and the right to housing for people who, who are not housed right now. There were a lot of people at these public meetings in Hamilton that were against allowing tents in neighborhood parks. Our poll question of the day is also reflecting that 83% against allowing encampment sites in the city. From those who are in the encampments, and I know you've spoken to many of them, up to five tents on public property, what are they saying about that? Well, they are certainly concerned about some of the restrictions. And um, I, I think that one of the biggest issues out there is access to washroom facilities and, and shower facilities and that sort of thing. The uh, the city is recommending opening up a couple of, uh, of recreation centers uh, 24 hours to ensure uh, that individuals who are unhoused can, can access those facilities. And, you know, it, it's not only important for those individuals, it's important, I think, for, for neighborhoods as well, because I was, I sat through the council meeting yesterday for, for almost 10 hours and I heard a lot of uh, neighborhood concerns about, you know, uh, people not being able to access washrooms and, and, and going on on private property and that sort of thing. So it's a very real concern. We can't turn a blind eye to that. But I think opening up rec centers will offer opportunities for people to to be able to to use those facilities. Why can't we, and I should have asked this uh, with our councillor, Mr. Danko, why can't we just allocate one rec centre and create a new homeless shelter and staff it? I know that's probably pie-in-the-sky thinking. But why can't we do that? Yeah, it, it, I, I think we do need some pie-in-the-sky thinking. Um, and that's one of the reasons we like the idea about uh, building this small village of, of tiny cabins as well. But I, I think opening up uh, a, a, a recreation center or an unused uh, school building maybe might uh, might be the way to go as well. Um, but for the time being, uh, I, th- I think, you know, we're, we're looking at limited options right now. This whole issue has polarized the community and everybody recognizes that we need to help individuals who are, who are homeless, but we also need safe, um, spaces for, for our kids to play too. Right. So it, it's, it's striking that balance. And I think this protocol does do that. Uh, but it's, it's, certainly going to create a lot of challenges as, as we move forward too so we'll just have to take it as it comes there's uh, there's many other questions that uh, i and i'm sure a lot of other people have but we'll have to save that for another day tom really appreciate your time this morning thanks for joining us thanks rick bye that's tom cooper the director of the hamilton roundtable for poverty reduction and we will have this conversation continue to have this conversation because well we need to find a better solution than what we have right now and i know there's a long way to go and there's a lot of money to be spent but a lot of people need some assistance you're listening to the good morning hamilton podcast from 900 chml if you won the lotto max jackpot i'm not sure how concerned you would be with inflation and interest rates and mortgage rates and you know it'd be easy easy living smooth sailing at least as long as you're careful with your money. Speaking of which, StatsCan is set to release its July Consumer Price Index report, and forecasters are expecting inflation ticked up last month as gasoline prices went higher. 
Canada's annual inflation rate fell to 2.8% in June, falling back to the Bank of Canada's target range for the first time since March of 2021. That range was between 2 and 3%. So, you know, that was good news. But economists say the challenge ahead for the central bank is getting inflation back to that 2% target. Core inflation, by the way, still at around 4%, which is pretty high. Romel Mustafa is an assistant professor of business, economics, and public policy and the director of the Lawrence National Center for Policy and Management in the Ivy School of Business at Western University and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Uh, Professor Mustafa, good morning. How are you today? Good morning, Rick. It's good to be uh, on your show this morning. Thanks for having me. I'm glad uh, that you were able to carve out some time out of your busy morning to spend it with us and educate our listeners on what may or may not happen. Let's start with this. Uh, BMO chief economist Douglas Porter said that he thinks this report, Consumer Price Index report, is going to be a dash of reality for everyone, including the Bank of Canada, that basically the easy phase of this whole thing is over and now the hard work begins. Do you agree with what Mr. Porter saying? In a sense, yes. I think, I mean, you know, um, as you noted, right? I mean, most of the estimates are coming between 29 to 3.5, you know, 3.1% uh, for July headline inflation compared to 2.8% in June, right? And so this is ticking up and there are you know, quite a few reasons why that may be. And your listeners will uh, relate to the fact that, you know, gas prices at the pump uh, have gone up in the last few weeks, right? I just remember, I mean, what is it? Uh, a few weeks ago, it would uh, cost me 80 bucks to fill up my tank. Now it's more than 100, right? So uh, there's an expectation that energy component of CPI could take up as a result. Uh, there's also the issue of base effect that will affect our July headline CPI, as it did for the US CPI number released last week. You know, we had an unusually large drop in, of in energy prices in in a July 2022, which pulled down, you know, CPI measures for the months through June 2023, but will not be included in July 2023. So this would inflate some of the numbers uh, for July, you know, 2023. Uh, we've had elevated, you know, food prices for some time. Um, and that's something that your listeners will relate to. Uh, for the June print, right, grocery prices were one of the largest contributors to CPI. Um, additionally, it will be, uh, you know, good to keep up an eye, uh, on other components, including service items, as well as mortgage costs and shelter. You know, you were talking about, you know, interest rates affecting, uh, mortgage, you know, costs, right? Um, we could expect, however, you know, household furniture, equipment, vehicles, you know, to those components to soften further. In any event, I think, you know, we'll, we'll get the July inflation print in a few hours. And uh, the consensus is that it's uh, going to tick up. So but even if it comes higher, you know, at the higher end of the estimates at 3.2%, I think uh, the important thing is that it should not be alarming, okay? So this is where I'll depart from of, uh, the um, more of the conventional forecasters. As you know, Rick, uh, one data point doesn't make a trend, right? Uh, we made a lot of progress in the last one year bringing headline inflation down a year ago there was a fear of a runaway inflation that inflation will you know that the fact that inflation could 
potentially, you know, rise and rise quickly. Today, overall, prices are going much modestly. Uh, and clearly, one uptick in CPI won't build a case for run, runaway inflation. Right? So, so let me ask you this. If, if the number today is 3, 3.3, 3.5, whatever the percentage is, but it's higher than 3%, does the Bank of Canada's next interest rate decision, which is scheduled September 6th, do you think that this report, this number, is going to force... Tiff Macklem and his pals at the central bank to say, all right, maybe we do have to hike interest rates again. What are your thoughts? The, the higher the number, the you know, it becomes, uh, it, it makes a stronger case for raising it, interest rates, right? Uh, but, you know, even if it's 3.2%, 3.3%, you know, my, you know, if I were at the hem of the central bank, I would have... Uh, essentially uh, you know said let's let's just pause here in part because there are few factors that are going on right um we know that uh, you know first one you know inflation print does not necessarily create uh, a trend um and you know if you think about it interest rates um you know take a long time to uh, work its way into the economy, right? So we've raised interest rates, right, um, back to back last year significantly, and uh, uh, you know those effects still haven't all been factored into the economy, let alone the recent hikes, right? And so I think, uh, you know, potentially, you know, uh, there, there's still room for these interest rates to work in its way. And there's also compelling reasons when you look at the labor market, right? I mean, uh, the labor market has softened substantially. Uh, there are signs that, uh, you know, I mean, the unemployment rate uh, has ticked up to 5.5%. You know, vacancy rates are dropping. So the idea that, you know, uh, there could be inflation, uh, in a wage price inflationary pressure uh, I think it's that's compelling at this point in time. So, so things have changed in the macro economy in ways that I think it makes also a compelling case, you know, for it to pause. But granted, the I, think, I think most people hearing comes, that, I think most right? people hearing that, Romel, is they'll be thinking, why don't we get this guy to replace Tiff Macklem and just hold hold those interest rates? Uh, Romel, we'll have to leave it there. Appreciate your insight into this, and uh, we'll certainly chat with you uh, sometime in the near future. Terrific. Thank you for having me. Ramel Mustafa is an assistant professor at the Ivy School of Business at Western University. Should also mention that the Bank of Canada's key interest rate, if you don't already know, it's sitting at 5% even. It's the highest it's been since 2001. And the latest projections from the Bank of Canada say that they're expecting inflation to hover around 3% for the next year before gradually falling back to 2% by mid-2025. So they're still... Ways to go yet. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The question, and it's growing louder and louder, are political parties, are political leaders embracing the language of conspiracy theories more and more? And this is really nothing new, but it seems to have ramped up over the last number of years. And, and maybe Mr. Trump is a big reason why this has come to the to the surface. And one example of it here in Canada is conservative leader Pierre Polyev, 
who continues his assault on the elite by, well, by pointing out the World Economic Forum. And he has told supporters time and time again that he's going to ban his ministers from attending the World Economic Forum's conferences. By the way, if you're wondering, what is the World Economic Forum? Established in 1971 as a not-for-profit foundation in Switzerland, it's an independent, impartial body that, according to its website, engages the foremost political, business, cultural, and other leaders of society to shape global, regional, and industry agendas. But whether you're on the far right or the far left, you know, they're pointing to the forum's quote-unquote great reset in attempting to manufacture a communist global society that's going to take over the world and, and take over your rights. Marcus Kolga is the founder of DisinfoWatch.org, a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad, and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Marcus, good morning. How are you? I'm great, Rick. Thanks for having me on. Why are conspiracy theories entering the political speak now more than ever before? Well, look, they've been around for forever. As long as we've discussed politics, as long as there have been efforts to try and take power, conspiracy theories have been around. But the sort of this modern phase that we're seeing right now, really, you know, by by my estimations from the research I've done on all of this, um, it this started in around 2008 uh, when um, Barack Obama was up against John McCain. Uh, in 2008, trying to uh, become the win that election to become uh, president of the United States, and there's you might recall this conspiracy theory about Obama. It's, it was called the Birther Movement. Uh, there were individuals on the far right who questioned whether he was uh, born in the United States at all, and therefore questioning whether he was eligible to run for president. Um, you know, and and it, these other conspiracy theories sort of grew out of that, um, and uh, certainly during the the uh, the pandemic, uh, we saw a complete explosion of conspiracy theories, uh, you know, questioning uh, whether it was actually the pandemic was happening, whether COVID was real, whether it was being manufactured by the global elite, by the World Economic Forum as a way uh, to control us. Um, and since then, uh, you know, we've not done much to address those conspiracy theories. And unfortunately, there are these uh, you know, uh, fly-by-night sort of huckster media sites that that traffic in these uh, these conspiracy theories that continue to promote them, and unfortunately, there are these opportunistic politicians on the far left and the far right um, who uh, also you know traffic in these conspiracy theories to grow their following. Um, and uh, and the real threat is when you have mainstream politicians who um, pick these you know parts of these conspiracy theories they support them um, and uh, and push them into the mainstream that um, you know this uh, facilitates and enables um, the the further amplification of conspiracy theories and normalizes basically what is the promotion of lies and ultimately if you know if we don't take care to uh, address the uh, proliferation of conspiracy theories it really does pose a threat uh, to the cohesion, uh, ultimately to the cohesion of our democracy. This is another example of populism being effective but not quite perfect, correct? Well, sure. And and to me, it's what's interesting about all of this, and you brought this up in your intro, is a lot of this stuff is contradictory. So um, the World Economic Forum, if we're going to take that, for example, um, this is a, a, a forum, a, a, an, an annual conference that has brought together the you know, global uh, global businesses, global government brings them together to talk about 
the most pressing economic issues and to sort of forecast and think about how to do things differently down the road. And it really is a, uh, a group of, of some of the richest people in the world. There is truth to that. Um, what's uh, sort of funny and contradictory to me in all of this is that you do have conservatives, far-right conservatives, who are questioning all of this. Um, the fact is, is that conservative leaders, Prime Minister Harper in the mid-2000s, um, participated in the World Economic Forum. In fact, he stood beside Carl uh, Schwab, or Charles Schwab, rather, um, the founder of the World Economic Forum, and, and gave a speech. Um, John Baird, Ed Fast, a number of Harper-era ministers attended that conference as well, because it's really in, in Canada's interest to have these discussions with global economic leaders, with other uh, governments as well, to figure out uh, a, a way forward in, in the future that would benefit Canadians. And so to have, again, these conservative, uh, far-right conservatives suggest that uh, this is some sort of a communist plot, a socialist plot to impose communism on us is is, is really uh, quite contradictory and, and, and rather strange. It certainly is, and, and dangerous in the same light as well, especially if it's being promoted by a potential future prime minister of this country. But we'll leave that part of the discussion for another day. Marcus, I appreciate your time. Love the conversation this morning. Thanks for joining us. Anytime. Thanks for having me on, Rick. Marcus Kolga, the founder of DisInfoWatch.org, a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Fighting in a hockey. Those two things have gone hand in hand since the sport was created many, 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 many years ago. Well, there's new news on this front because the QMJHL, the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League is implementing a plan, new guidelines for the upcoming season that will really put fighting under the microscope. Because if a player instigates a fight, they will get an automatic one-game suspension. And players who are found to be the quote-unquote aggressor will be suspended for at least two games. Now, it doesn't automatically ban fighting, but we're going to see, I would imagine, a lot less fights in the queue. Here in Ontario, the OHL has a three-fight cap per player. At least last time I checked, that was the case. Before a two-game suspension kicks in for that player who, well, gets into three fights. Stephen Ellis is the associate editor and prospect analyst at Daily Faceoff and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Stephen, good morning. How are you? I'm great. How are you doing, Rick? I'm good. Did I get the OHL thing right, by the way, the three-cap limit for fights? That's my understanding. So for the queue... Um, what do you make of these harsher penalties that they're implementing for the upcoming season? Well, there's political pressure from, from the Quebec government to try to make it so they can make the sport safer because you are hearing about the players who, you know, like in junior hockey, there's no guarantee these guys are going to be playing pro hockey and players are having brain injuries and, and, and suffering serious injuries in a lot of cases for no reason where, where they're just they're suffering life consequences and they're not continuing to play hockey after this. So they were trying to make it a little safer, so I get it from there. Um, but, you know, that's, it, it, I'd say that it feels extreme, but it's kind of junior A hockey, too, where, you know, in the OJHL, the players start wearing cages a couple of years ago, and then something where they will start suspending players for fights. You know, a one-game suspension is not the biggest thing in the world. Like, some players, if, if they really want to fight, if they want to settle a score, they'll find it to be worth it. But, you know, I think this will deter it in a big way for guys who 
are just going to fight in the heat of a moment type thing. I'm I'm almost positive the OHL and the Western Hockey League in particular are going to be looking at how this plays out in Quebec and might fine-tune their policy going forward. Do you get that sense that they're really watching closely? Yes. And, like, you know, we, we've seen things where, like, a 16-year-old will fight a 20-year-old. And, you know, just from, from that alone, that seems wrong. Um, but, you know, it, it is, like, we're, we're talking about teenagers fighting here. These are still kids. Like, and, and a lot of people get really upset about this and say, like, oh, I'm not going to watch now. It's like, if you were watching to watching junior hockey to see fighting, you're watching for the wrong reasons. So, you know, I know fighting is a popular thing of the game. I still enjoy watching fighting, but uh, I think it's it's something where in junior hockey, it's truly not needed. When it comes to the National Hockey League level, or even, you know, the American Hockey League, the East Coast Hockey League, these lesser pro leagues, will there be, there's always been the conversation that, you know, do we still need this? But will there be an enhanced conversation if these junior leagues start implementing this? Because let's not forget, the stars of tomorrow come from these junior leagues. I think no, because I think if if the junior leagues start really pushing it, because look, look, there's no fighting in college hockey. Fighting doesn't come from European hockey leagues. It's really more of a North American thing, anyways. I think when you start to slowly eliminate that at the junior level here, it's just going to naturally go away. And you know, for the AHL and the ECHL, fighting's actually a huge part of the marketing. It's like you know, a lot of these guys are there to just fight their way up and see what happens. Uh, in the NHL, it's the fighting. Well, I don't think it'll go away. And I think right now we're at a level where, you know, we're, we're not seeing the goons. We're not seeing as many serious injuries. I think we're at a pretty decent spot in the NHL. But I think naturally, if the junior league started eradicating it, I think it's going to start going away naturally and that'll be okay. We got uh, one more minute. I want to ask you about David Branch, the longtime Ontario Hockey League commissioner, who recently said that after the upcoming season, he's finally going to call it quits. And here's a guy who's been around since 1980. Speak to the impact that Mr. Branch has had on the OHL. He's been there for so long. You know, a lot of things that have done, other CH leagues uh, have kind of fallen suit or taken suit. And, you know, the OHL has been one of the top development leagues for a long time. And there, it was always consistent. I let David go through there and just the, the value that those teams still continue to have. So clearly he did a job that, uh, that that's worth uh, remembering. Yeah, his legacy will be long-lasting. He's done a phenomenal job over the years. Stephen, thanks for your time today. Enjoy the rest of the day. Yeah, thank you so much. Stephen Ellis, Associate Editor and Prospect Analyst for Daily Faceoff. For apologies for the phone snafu. Uh, that's the way it goes sometimes with technology. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.